Our third session for today is going to be about go and do likewise, uh, words which our Lord tells his disciples. Um, and so um, what we'll do uh, to, for in this session is um, we'll talk a little bit again about the prodigal son, revisiting that story from a slightly different angle. Um, and then we will talk about some of the demands of forgiveness that forgiveness places on us. And I think a little bit uh, about what forgiveness does not require. Um, and then I kind of want to ask a question to frame kind of the end of our discussion. Um, and then we can conclude. Um, and then we'll have uh, Holy Communion here in a little bit. So the prodigal son story. Now, one of the things about the scriptures is that you can, they're, they're often like a gem. You know, you hold a gem up to the light and you turn it and it refracts differently as you turn, Right. Uh, The light just hits it in different ways, and you can kind of see things differently as you turn it. Scripture is very much like that, and that's why it's helpful to really meditate on Scripture for an extended period of time. And and it's fun to revisit a Scripture later on that you may have, you know, used earlier in your your spiritual journey. You know, what, what that verse meant to you 20 years ago may be similar but slightly different than what it means to you now, um, because you've had all of these various life experiences in between. It's one of the beauties of scripture. God speaks to us through the scriptures. So there is the sense in which the prodigal son's story tells us a kind of larger narrative about salvation, right? The father is God. We're the prodigal son. You know, don't be like the, uh, as a result of being the prodigal son, don't be like the older brother, right? And that's true. That's good. That's really the starting point for that story. But like anything, especially Jesus' parables, I think it helps to kind of insert yourself or, or at least see yourself as potential characters in the story, right? So, um, so the father can be understood as the one who forgives. You know, the prodigal is the one who has wronged. And so there are times where I'm the father. I've been wronged, right? And there are times where I'm the son. I'm the one who has wronged. So I can insert myself into the narrative, right? I've been wronged and I know that I need to forgive just as God forgives. God sets the example for me. He is the father in the story. What does it look like for me in my situation to extend forgiveness? Or if I'm the prodigal, I've wronged someone and I know that I've wronged someone. And so what does it mean for me to seek out forgiveness from them? So there are different times and different places in which we might uh, gravitate towards one character or another. I think really being introspective will make us careful of overly identifying with the father, right? Usually if there is a relationship characterized by, uh, by wrongs, we may have contributed in some way, perhaps unknowingly, but we might have been a participant. So there's a degree to which we might even be the father and the son at the same time. But what we really need to be careful about is the older brother, uh, becoming the older brother, which is what happens when we don't forgive. And this is very scary. You know, Jesus talks about hell, talks about heaven um, throughout his his ministry. And there's a sense in which he's talking about ultimate destinies. um, and, And those warnings need to be taken very seriously in that light. There is another sense in which many of these warnings apply right now. That living in a state of unforgiveness is a kind of hell. Living in a state of sin is a kind of hell. You know, if, we, if you commit a serious sin, I, I mean, I can testify to this in my own life. You know, if I commit a serious sin, there is a kind of dullness, a kind of pressure, 
a kind of malaise that, that, that just creeps in through that sin that, I mean, it, it's not living the way that we're supposed to live. It is a kind of hell. It's not fiery. It's not fantastic imagery, you know, it, it, but it is real and it is awful and horrible and not the way that God has designed it to be. There are three sort of implications about the older brother um, that I think are especially important to point out in the story. He, he's very much like Cain from the Cain and Abel story. You know, Cain harbors bitterness against Abel um, for a perceived wrong, it seems like. I mean, it seems like he's mad that Abel's sacrifice got accepted and his didn't. And it kind of raises the question what Cain exactly is mad about. I mean, his sacrifice wasn't acceptable for whatever reason on its own terms. Uh, it doesn't seem like Abel's good sacrifice takes away from Cain's bad sacrifice. You know, it's not like, it's not like a class ranking system. Oh, well, your, your sacrifice would have been accepted if Abel hadn't offered his or rather something was deficient about it, and it seems like Cain projects onto Abel the problem, right? We often do that. You know, oh, I wasn't successful because of that person and that person and that person. Um, so he does that, and, and he allows bitterness to really develop in his heart. And God warns him. He tries to warn him. You know, sin is crouching by the door, waiting to, to attack you. Be vigilant. Be on guard. Of course, Cain doesn't listen. So we have this bitterness building up in the older brother, which expresses itself how? Well, he's bitter, but his bitterness prevents him from joining the party, right? There's all this celebrating and jubilee occurring because of of what has happened with the younger brother. And we've got the older brother outside moping, being seething, being angry. He can't enjoy the good things because he's so preoccupied with this bitterness, with this resentment. He's rejected not only his younger brother, but also his father's forgiving and beautiful actions. And all this leads to that heart of resentment that we discussed earlier, right? It is the sin of pride. The older brother is against forgiving the prodigal brother because he's worried about what it means for him. He's worried that, that if, if, the older, if the younger brother's rewarded, he won't get the recognition he deserves for being obedient, right? And that becomes a real problem. So what does forgiveness demand of us? What does, it, what does it really require of us to release the resentment that we have towards others? Well, the first thing we should point out is that forgiveness is not optional. It is not optional. Now, there are times where, you know, we might want to be gentle with someone who's been wronged. You know, we don't just go up to someone and say, well, just forgive, you know, a woman who's been abused by her abusive husband or something. You don't say, oh, just, just forgive him. It's okay. We'll move on, right? That wouldn't be inappropriate. Um, but forgiveness is the task of a Christian. So even in a tough situation, it must be done. I mean, think about Matthew six fourteen to 15. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, Neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Hansers von Balthasar said that God's infinite love, meant to educate the sinner, must be accepted by that sinner, and acceptance means not only regarding it as true, but behaving in a corresponding manner. If we really grasp, at least on some level, what God has done for us, it will impact how we interact with others, right? So we begin to see people not as those who have wronged us or who do wrong us, but as people for whom Christ has died. 
And this, again, I think goes back to that story of the ungrateful servant. You know, he's forgiven a huge debt and he can't let go of that little, tiny, minuscule debt, insignificant debt. And again, von Balthasar says, God is primarily merciful and reacts with anger only to the unmercifulness of man. Right? So there's a very serious bar. Um, it, the, the, our inability to forgive is sort of the seeds of our own destruction um, in, in many of these passages is what it seems like. Luke 6, 36 to 37. Be ye therefore merciful as your father also is merciful. Judge not and ye shall not be judged. Condemn not, and ye shall not be condemned. Forgive, and ye shall be forgiven. Of course, that's a verse that's often cited without context by many, right? Don't judge me. They're not supposed to judge me. Um, and, you know, uh, sometimes that's reacting to something that is true. Other times it's used as a way to justify one's behavior or try to get away from any sort of accountability. One commentator on Luke says that don't judge is, uh, does not imply flabby indifference. I like that phrase, flabby indifference. Does not imply flabby indifference to the moral condition of others, nor the blind renunciation of attempts at a true and serious appraisal of those with whom we have to live. What is unconditionally demanded is that such evaluations should be subject to the certainty that God's judgment falls also on those who judge, so that superiority, hardness, and blindness to one's own faults are excluded and a readiness to forgive and to intercede is a safeguard. In other words, remember that you are a creature, not the creator, right? Our creator has the right to judge. We, while needing to make certain moral judgments, cannot place ourselves in his place. So that often happens as a minister. Deacon David, I'm sure this has happened to you before. You're out and somebody will tell you their life story or they'll tell you about a loved one who's passed away recently and they'll say, Father, is she in heaven or not? I don't know. I have to say, well, that's above my pay grade. I don't know. You know, I mean, I I hope so. We can pray for that person. You know, if they were baptized, there's hope. Um, And there there may even be hope for people who aren't baptized. But the point is that, that it's not my place to make that judgment, right? It's God's place to make that judgment. And so, again, this doesn't mean that we are okay with a sort of laissez-faire, anything goes, morality, or anything like that, but it does mean that we need to be very careful when we make judgments. Um, And so so the command to forgive that goes along with this, I think, is is about us actually forgiving someone who has committed an offense against us through insult or injury. It's an exhortation, as I, Howard Marshall says, to not stand on our own rights, but rather to love other people, even at the cost of one's own pride and position. Now, the Apostle Paul gives us two more uh, verses in terms of forgiveness, um, and I think there are more we could point to, but these are the two that really speak to what we're talking about right now with forgiveness being, being really required for Christians. Um, Ephesians 4.32, And be ye kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. And Colossians 3.13, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. So it's, it's something we must do. It's hard. It's a struggle. That's why I, that's why I amended the definition to say it's not just an act 
It's a process. Another thing that forgiveness requires of us is that we should do it as many times as it takes. As many times as it takes. There's a novel that I love, and I've talked about it before um, at various Bible studies, called Silence by Shisaku Indo, who is a Roman Catholic Japanese Christian. And this novel is beautiful. It's hard to read. It's about the persecution of Christians in, in Japan in like the 16, 1700s. And there are two priests who go to Japan secretly to spread the gospel and administer the sacraments to the Japanese Christians. And one of the priests gets betrayed by a, a, a guy who is a drunk. He's a Christian, but he had renounced uh, God when, during the persecution to save his life. So he's sort of a disgraced, fallen Christian. But he's still there, and he keeps asking to go to confession. And the priest will give him confession and, and grant his absolution, and then he'll do something else and mess up, and then he'll go back to confession. And so he betrays the priest. He gives him over to the Japanese government. And even after that, he's the Judas character, but even after that, he does go to the priest and asks for confession, and the priest gives it to him, right? That's tough, especially if you're the priest, right, to give someone absolution after they've turned you over to what, you, what may be your death. But that's what it takes. We have to do it as many times as, we, as is asked of us. Matthew 18, 21 to 22. Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus says, yeah, seven times is enough. No, right? 70 times seven, he says, which of course doesn't mean 490 times. It means this is something you have to keep doing. Do it until it happens. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it, right? And that's why forgiveness is both a decision and a process. It is a decision. You have to decide that you're going to forgive someone. It doesn't come naturally. You're not just going to wake up one day necessarily and say, oh, I forgive all the people that wronged me, right? Um, sometimes time heals wounds, but I think that's kind of a, one of those phrases that can actually be more unhelpful than helpful. Time heals all wounds. Well, no, uh, not necessarily. Some wounds are going to be there for a long time, and pretending that they don't exist or pretending that they go away over time can actually be unhelpful. Um, so we have to make the decision, I will forgive that person. And it's going to be hard. Those families of Dylan Roof's victims had to make a very, very hard decision, didn't they? But they had to make it. But it's a process, right? Those neurons keep firing even after the original experience. We feel those feelings. We may at one, one day feel at peace with someone who's wronged us, and then a couple of days later something happens, and we're sort of triggered again, and we have to do it all over again, even though we've said that they're forgiven. So 70 times 7, I think, can apply to a perpetual offender, right? Someone you know who's particularly obnoxious, who continues to wrong you uh, over and over and over again. But it may also apply to this a singular action, you know, that I might have to keep forgiving. I might have to wake up every day and say, I'm going to let go of that resentment that I'm feeling. And I think there's a sense in which forgiveness is capacious as a result of that. You know, once you do it, it's easier to do it. But you have to do it. Um, if you don't do it, it'll be harder to do it. So it but once you start, it should be hopefully become easier with time, um, though it may never be fully easy. I mean, I can't imagine that forgiving Dylan Roof uh, ever really becomes easy, but it is, I think, there's a degree to which it's capacious. It's very important, 
I think, here to talk a little bit about what forgiveness is not as well. Because forgiveness requires a lot of us, right? It is not optional. It is something we have to keep doing. Um, and uh, and it's, um, it's something that might take a lot of time. But there are sometimes unhealthy views of forgiveness. Um, and that can, that can actually undermine the process. It can either prevent healing or it can allow a wrongdoer to continue perpetuating wrongs. Right, So I think the first thing that forgiveness does not require is that it does not require you to put yourself in toxic situations over and over and over again. Right, So if you're in a situation of spousal abuse, um, you know, should you forgive the abuser? Yes. Does that mean going back and living with them and putting yourself in danger? No, not necessarily. In fact, I think you could make the argument that's actually not very loving. Um, because uh, unless that person really deals with what they need to deal with, um, you're actually, you're, you could actually uh, allow that to perpetuate. Um, I don't think that for, so forgiveness doesn't require uh, putting ourselves in toxic situations. There may be some instances in which you say, I forgive you, but we now have to draw very strict boundary lines. Uh, we cannot, uh, things cannot be the way that they were. Um, and that's okay. That's actually a good thing to be able to draw those healthy lines. Um, healing requires a feeling of safety. Um, and if you don't, if you deprive yourself of, of that safety, then there won't be there won't be the healing that's needed. I don't think that forgiveness necessarily requires an emotional resolution either, right? We we kind of I think sometimes think that that's what will happen. If I forgive them, then these feelings will go away. That's not necessarily true. Um, and 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 if we expect that to be the ultimate result of forgiveness, then I think it may end up impeding our ability to forgive. Well, I can't forgive them because I still don't feel right about it. Well, there may be actions where you'll never feel right about that because it wasn't a good thing that happened. And and again, that there's that balance of justice and mercy, right? Um, it would be bad to overlook a wrong that was committed at one point that was really grievous and serious. That doesn't mean we don't forgive. But it does mean that wrestling through this will, will need to happen. And, but we shouldn't wait for the complete emotional resolution to forgive necessarily. And then finally, it does not mean, forgiveness does not mean setting aside justice. And I, we have to be careful because sometimes we equate justice with vengeance. And sometimes we, we, what we mean when we say justice is pure retaliation. Justice is for the good of those involved, the victim and the perpetrator. So, for example, with someone like a Dylan Roof, it would not be good just because those families said that they forgave him to let him walk out of prison, right? That would be bad for him. It would be bad for those families, right? Both parties involved, it would not be good for them to do that. He needs to go to prison, um, in fact, he's not particularly repentant either, so it, it would really be bad. Um, so so justice, uh, justice needs to be rendered, um, and, and, but our view of justice should be restorative. It should be for the good of the person. So, I mean, think about like, uh, like if a family has a drug addict in the, in the family and they get arrested um, for their behavior, and this has been a problem for years, and they've tried to get him clean, and, they, and he won't listen and things. You know, it might be good to let him go to prison for a time, to be taken to a, a facility, you know, to detox and all that stuff, that's good for him. Again, like we said earlier with God's, uh, God's punishment uh, of Israel, it may not in the moment feel pleasant, but it is necessary. 
And so when we forgive, we want to make sure that we're still interested in the, in the good for the, per, for the perpetrator. And that may require some aspect of administering justice. So it would be, it would be unloving to let go of justice there. So, so what we can say is that forgiveness is our responsibility as Christians. We've been forgiven much, so we need to forgive much. That that will not necessarily come easy. It'll take as much time, or it requires as much time as it takes. And that we should understand that this is both a decision and a process, that this is not going to be a one-and-done thing most of the time. But that whatever we do in terms of forgiveness, it doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean erasing boundary lines. It doesn't mean things automatically go back to the way that they used to be with whatever with the person. It doesn't mean that we're going to feel like uh, like everything's okay, and it doesn't mean that uh, that justice should be ignored or set aside or diminished. All of that can be true, I think, at the same time. Now, let me ask you a question as we kind of close our, our time together. Um, I had a parishioner, one of the parishioners who, uh, who kind of put the bug in my ear that it would be good to do something about forgiveness, uh, sent me a quote. She couldn't be here today. She had to um, go to a, a, a bridal shower. Um, but she sent me a quote from a TV show she was watching in the past week or two. Um, and the quote is this, I'm a forgiving man, but there are some things that can never be excused. And so she wanted to know, is that, what, what do we think about that quote? And I think it's a good way to kind of apply what it is that we've learned today. I'm a forgiving man, but there are some things that can never be excused. What do we think about that quote? Is that a particularly Christian idea or not? David? Well, I would say there's a big difference between saying, I forgive you for what you did and we can clean this up, and what you did was okay. Right. Excusing it is saying, it was all right, I shouldn't have been upset with you over it. Right, that's right. There is a big difference between excusing and forgiving. I'm a forgiving man, but not everything is excusable. Well, yeah, right, not everything is excusable. But that doesn't, the the tone of the quote, and there's no context, I don't even know what show that came from, but, but... it almost sounds like, uh, like the speaker is equating forgiveness and excusing. I'm a forgiving man, but that can't be forgiven. But to us, it's different than I'm a forgiving man, that can't be excused, right? Um, at least that's how I would read it. I would make the same distinction. What's excused is not, uh, that's, uh, excusing something is not synonymous with forgiving something. In fact, sometimes it can be the opposite, Right? If I excuse something, I'm not necessarily forgiving it. I'm not dealing with it the right way. I'm just saying, eh, putting it aside. It's that indifference that you find in paganism that we talked about earlier. Yes, Donna. How can you tell whether if you forgive someone, Mm. whether it's you're genuinely forgiving? Hmm. How can you tell if you're genuinely forgiving someone? I think some of that goes back to what we were saying about the emotional resolution is not the same as, as forgiving. And, and again, when we talk about forgiveness as process, um, we don't necessarily always know that we're forgiving them genuinely, right? Um, 
And that's why we have to continue doing it sometimes. And when it, comes, when it keeps coming up, it perhaps is a sign, maybe I haven't forgiven them the way that I thought I should have, right? Or I thought I did even. Um, and I mean, the human heart can be rather deceitful sometimes, you know? Yes, it absolutely does. Yes, yes, yes. I, um, I had an experience a few years ago. I, um, I went to a conference uh, while I was a teacher, and I ran into someone who I had perceived, perceived had wronged me a long time ago when I was in high school. And seeing this person, it was very uh, different. Um, it made it, it, in some ways, easier to forgive because I had built up a really uh, different image of this person in my brain than actually existed, right? And in, in conversing with them uh, and, and, and not reconnecting, but in, just in, 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 um, in, in communicating with them, um, it helped me understand that A, I had certainly not forgiven them, but that B, I, I needed to because who they are and who they were are not necessarily the same person. In other words, I could, I could humanize them in a way that I had not been humanizing them. Um, and so, but, but does, did that happen overnight? No. Mm-mm. Um, did I feel uh, like things were resolved as soon as we had our conversation? No, not at all. Right, that's been years and years and months and months of, of hard work, and then there are times where it doesn't, you know, it comes back. And again, that's why, you know, wake up and you say, okay, I need to be intentional about forgiving this person. And, and it's also the kind of thing where, I mean, it comes up in my confession sometimes when I go to confession. I have to bring that up, you know, it was really, I, I don't know why, but it's, it's come back, you know, I feel, I've been feeling that lately. And so it just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long process. It's a hard process, but it's worth doing um, because our, our Lord has, has told us to do it. David? I was just going to say, then forgiving, in my experience, isn't necessarily one and done. Uh-huh. And it's not a matter of was I sincere so much as was it complete, was I successful, Next time I think of the event, how do I feel about it? Yes. Do I still feel the need to forgive more or yes. has it lost all of its energy? And one thing I would recommend, especially for these situations that are long-term, you know, I keep waking up and feeling this way about someone or it just hits me every so often, you know, this bitterness, um, pray for that person. Really pray for them. Pray for their own, for their good, right? Not good in relation to you, but for their good. And I think that helps, again, kind of step outside of the uh, tit for tat, us versus them, you know, kind of relationship of antagonism and allows us to see them through the lens of our Lord. That is a person Christ has died for. That is a person crisis. Sometimes that's all you can say, even, you know? Um, but that is, that is a, a helpful way. And if you say it enough times, you might actually start to believe it. I recently started to do that, and it has made a difference. It makes a huge difference. Yeah.
makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah. I've talked about this before. Brother Andrew had this um, uh, practicing the presence of God, the dishwasher of the monastery, and he would use his low station in the monastery to reflect that God is actually present right now, right? And that transfigures scrubbing the toilets and doing the dishes and all that. I think that, I think, and he was a monk, so he was, I mean, he was in community, but, you know, it was a different kind of community than, than what we would find ourselves in as, as secular uh, Christians who live in the world. Developing a similar awareness of God's presence in our interpersonal interactions should remind us that whoever we're dealing with, someone in our family who's tough to get along with, our spouse who can be difficult to get along with, someone who disagrees with me politically on Facebook, you know, anything like that, uh, that's a person for whom Christ has died, right? If we're aware that we're God's present right now, then it transfigures who we're interacting with. That's a person for whom Christ died. So I should pray for them. And really mean it, not like in the sweet southern way of I'll pray for it. Bless your heart, I'll pray for you, right? <laughs> yes. I found um, through teaching high school, and I can easily change this into my forgiveness because we all have big ones. Um, when I would have a really tough class coming or a few individuals that are coming, it was just like, I would, I would pray really, really hard before that class walked in. Nothing changed but me. Mm. My perception, my my ability to get along with these kids and make everything happen. It was still the same, it's still tough, it was still hard. Yeah. And that's the same as forgiveness. Yes. Because it's prayer and prayer and prayer and then nothing will change this happened. Right. But what changes is your heart and how you feel about it and you just know, okay. And then you go even deeper and pray very hard for that person. And it's still changes yeah. still you feel lighter in your soul the the ideal would be you know in any broken relationship would be a kind of reconciliation again that might not look like what it used to look like but it would be some sort of reconciliation but that requires two parties right um and and so the people we forgive will not necessarily be asking for it um and and your forgiveness may not ever change them but i think that what you said it changes me that's good. I had a friend who was Eastern Orthodox for a while, or went to an Orthodox church, and he was telling us actually last night, uh, he said, what I liked about the community is that everyone in it was more worried about their own salvation than other people's salvation. In other words, they weren't going around saying, man, you know, so-and-so really needs to get their act together. It was, I need to get my act together, you know, um, and uh, I think that's a, that's a good way to think about things, you know, I, um, when we forgive, it changes us. Yes. And it made a huge, complete turnaround in behavior. Sometimes people have to be loved into being lovable. (laughs) And forgiveness can be one of the ways that that happens. Not always. You know, like we talk about expectations, you know. Um, If we go into it saying, I'm forgiving this person so that they'll stop being a jerk. 
then we may be setting an unfair expectation. Um, but, but, you're right. If, if you really believe it and if you really do it, uh, putting it into practice, it can certainly, it can certainly. It, it's that same thing with Jesus, right? Like we said earlier, he shows us a new way to be human. And for some people, it attracts them. It brings them into this new humanity. But for other people, it's about getting out of the light, getting away from the light. They prefer their darkness, right? They want to they wanna lash out. Um, because they don't feel safe, you know, they, they're being confronted and whatever they see in that mirror really scares them and so they, they lash out, right? Um, and that can be true when we extend forgiveness. I mean, there are people who are so turned in on themselves who are so toxic that when we forgive them, they will lash out. There are other people who, when we forgive them, it will drag them, you know, draw them into the light in different ways. So we never know what will happen, but that's why we pray. Oh, yeah, there are definitely people who don't want to be forgiven. That, that is exactly what hell is, exactly, yes. Yeah, you don't want to be forgiven, you don't think you can be forgiven, all those things, yeah. Uh, uh, another little prayer that I've heard for a context like that is, bless them, change me. Mm. Bless them, change me, I like that. Mm. And it should be pointed out, well, we sort of talked about that. That, 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 that how we treat others will shape not only them but us. There is always that dynamic relationship between the I and the other, um, where we're being formed by them and they're being formed by us. And um, so as much as we can, bringing into that relationship a kind of forgiveness, a kind of peace-seeking um, is, is a good thing for everyone. Any other thoughts about our question? I'm a forgiving man, but there are things that can never be excused. One, one thing I had noticed, and this was years and years ago when I wrote a paper on the prodigal, so I may get the details a little wrong, but it's, it seemed really interesting that one of the things that the father said to the older brother was, Everything I have has always been yours. Yeah. That the older brother had long before the younger brother returned had a really twisted relationship in his home life Mm. with his father. That he had built up a resentment of some sort because this was talking about the fatted calf had been killed for this younger brother who didn't deserve it. Right. And all, you know, I can't get together with my guys right. and kill the fatted calf and have a party. And the father's saying, you could do that anytime you want. Uh-huh. And he didn't do it. Yeah. So this was a sour puss. That's right. Yeah, so the point being that the son, the older son has he has access to the father's estate and he in his resentment is reflective of of a much larger problem, right? It clearly something is twisted in his heart. And and, and this points this this really um I think goes back to an important point that that there there aren't really accidental serious sins, you know, um, that, that, uh, that 
if somebody does something that is really, you know, a bad, you know, mortal sin, that's not an isolated incident. There's something under the hood that needs to be corrected. The sin is just a sort of apocalyptic revelation that something is off, right? But, the, the, but whatever caused that sin is there. It's been there. It's been developing. It's been growing. It's sort of like a cancer, you know, it's been spreading um, and it hasn't been dealt with. So whatever the older brother is doing, it's clear this is not just he woke up one day and on the wrong side of the bed and had a bad day and didn't like the, what his dad was doing. This is years of bitterness, of something being wrong with him you know, on, on the inside and not dealing with it. You'd almost prefer him to be like the younger brother and just say, you know, screw it, dad. I, I don't want any more of this. You know, I mean, it, it's almost healthier in a way to, to just you know, have it out. But he's, he's kept that. He's, he's pushed it down so far that eventually he just can't, can't hold it anymore. I also, when I was writing that paper, I was thinking, oh, yeah, I'm the, I'm the product. Mm. You know, I can, I can write up a good acronym for me as the product, but I'm the other brother, too. Yeah. You know, how have I not been taking proper advantage Mm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's exactly why when we read scripture it's good to place ourselves in various perspectives within the story i am the prodigal right i can look back at my life and i can see all the ways god has brought me to where i am now but i am the older brother too and i can't emphasize me being the prodigal to the expense that i no longer think i'm the older brother or vice versa right Um, it's important to remember i'm both um, and, and in different cases, it may be one is more true than the other, right? Um, but generally, I, I am both. Just like when we read the, the crowds in Scripture, or we read about the Israelites, you know, what, all the bad things they're doing. Yeah, those Israelites, they're so backwards, I can't believe they did all that. No, I do that. I build golden calves. You know, I sacrifice uh, improperly all the time, right? That's me. That's me and, and the Israelites. So we have to remember that, um, that the Scripture is a mirror, for us. The scripture is a mirror for us and it shows us things about ourselves often. Anything else? We're coming to a close here in the next few minutes. Just to kind of conclude and if anybody has any more questions or comments feel free to let me know but we live in a world where we will be wronged And we will wrong others. Our world is polluted by sin, and it's very, very, very easy for us to get stuck in those cycles of being wronged and wronging others. Very easy. Sin is always easier, right? It's always easier to do the sin than to do the right thing, generally. Forgiveness is the action and the process of giving up resentment of giving up the demand for compensation or retaliation. It is the way for us to break those cycles of being wronged and wronging others. And this is only possible because God has taken the initiative in Christ to forgive us, to rescue us from our sins, even when we were his enemies who had rebelled against us. I mean, you can think about Adam and Eve, you know, the first sin. They sin, I mean, they're not particularly repentant. They're playing that blame game. And what does God do for them? I mean, he sends them out of the garden, which I think is an act of mercy, like we talked about earlier. But what else does he do? 
he gives them clothes, right? He takes an animal and he, he basically, this is the first sacrifice. Well, they didn't deserve that, but he did it anyways. So God has taken the initiative for us even while we were enemies of his. And so our call for us is to go and to do likewise. Um, I had been sent a tweet this week by, by one of our younger guys in the parish. And it was, it, was, it was reacting to real cultural problems, uh, but it wasn't... Um, wasn't, it didn't respond in the most Christ-like manner. So the, the tweet said, Americanized Christianity has convinced millions of professing Christians that love your enemy means have no enemies, resulting in a church that's become apathetic towards intolerant of unbridled evil, creating passive Christians stuck in inaction and fear. And that is certainly true in a sense. There are definitely parts of the church that have totally capitulated to the world. Um, and, and as a result, has become ineffective and, and impotent. Um, but loving our enemies is about a couple things. It's about that idea of, of loving them into being lovable, of changing them so that they're not our enemies. Right? It also assumes that, uh, that when the scripture speaks of an enemy, that, that it's a sort of asymmetrical, it is me versus them. That may be how they think, but it's not how I have to think. Right? Um, and then there is another sense in which St. Paul, you know, kind of refocuses our, our conflict. Uh, it's, our battle's not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. Um, and so when we see people who, who may set themselves up as our enemies, um, it can become very easy to get locked into that, you know, me versus you. Uh, I'm going to win or you're going to win, and we're going to go at this till the death, Right. That's not, I don't think, how we're to think about other people. Again, that's a person for whom Christ has died. What do we know about them? Well, we know Satan has the power of death, or the fear of death, right, uh, as Hebrews told us. They're enslaved to sin, to the devil, etc. And the gospel is about liberating them from that. Um, and so if we, if, we, um, if we view people who may say that they're our enemies as our enemies, then it will impede, I think, our ability to really love them into being lovable, to extend forgiveness to them. Um, because when, it, when, they're, when they're our enemies, then the only option really is proliferation, right? They wrong me, I've got to now wrong them, and it's, it becomes a mutually assured destruction. Um, but that's not what we're called to do. It's not what we're called to do. That doesn't mean we don't take a stand. Like I said, with, with not judging, it doesn't mean we don't have clear moral uh, uh, statements and, and beliefs, but it does mean that, that we understand that people are people and that they, uh, they need to be redeemed. So the call is for us to go and do likewise, to forgive as we have been forgiven. And so to conclude our time together here in a few minutes, we're going to do the votive mass for the remission of sins. There are bulletins on the back uh, table there. Um, a votive mass, by the way, if you're unfamiliar with that term, is a mass that's done for an occasion or with a particular intention. Um, so a day like today is not a feast day. It's not a, um, it's not a special day in the church calendar. It's the Saturday in the uh, octave of Trinity, I think, or something like that. Um, it's kind of a boring day, right? Um, so some, some votive masses are, are done for various intentions on various days. Like um, Saturdays are, can often be votive masses for Our Lady, and Wednesdays can be votive masses for St. Joseph. But you can also do votive masses for various intentions. And so today, the intention will be for the remission or the forgiveness of sins, which is apropos to our conversation. So as we 
go through the, the Mass and, and we listen to the propers for the day, which largely focus on God forgiving us, the idea is that we will go out from here carrying that forgiveness into a world that really needs uh, forgiveness to be injected into it. Um, and that's what Mass means, by the way. I know some people say Anglicans don't have Mass, we have Holy Communion. Well, the original prayer book had the word Mass, but it comes from the Latin word, which means to send. Right at the end of the service, you are sent out into the world to take the gospel into the world. And so uh, for that reason, I feel very comfortable calling today a vote of mass because we're being sent out to carry forgiveness. Um, so God forgives us. And then as a response, uh, we should forgive others. So, so perhaps uh, during the mass, uh, it might be good to, to pray um, about situations where you might need to, uh, to bring forgiveness. Um, we all have those situations that could be improved. Um, if we would only uh, find, it, uh, find a way to forgive um, and to, to actively seek that out. So before we end, are there any, uh, any questions? Yes, Sally Lee. Uh, if, if you say you've done something in your younger life mm-hmm. that you really wish you hadn't done or Absolutely. And so you pray for forgiveness. Mm. Now, do you continue to pray for forgiveness for that particular thing for the rest of your life? Yeah. So uh, you're talking about private prayer for forgiveness. So one of the problems um, is that we can either be too judgmental of ourselves or too lax with ourselves, right? Right. oh, that wasn't a big deal, I didn't, you know, that was so long ago, it doesn't matter. Um, Or I can't get that out of my head and it keeps coming up to me all the time and it keeps me up at night, I wring my hands wondering, did God really forgive me? You know, and I think we all have certain things that will come up every so often and we know that's, I think, something Satan will do to us. You know, he'll bring that up um, as a way to try, he is the accuser, right? He'll accuse us constantly. Um, So I would say uh, if you, if you ask God to forgive you with full contrition, which means you're sorry not because you're afraid of hell or you're afraid of the consequences of your action, but because you are genuinely sorry for having wronged our Lord, you know that, that it was, it was, you did not give God honor the way that you should, and you're, you pray for forgiveness with that spirit, then that's not something that you need to continually pray for. If, however, you do pray and it keeps coming up to you and you can't, you can't get it out of your head, then I would, I would really encourage uh, what the exhortation tells us that we read a few weeks ago at Trinity Sunday. Come talk to me or to another minister. You know, make a confession and, and make that a part of it um, as a way to uh, – because then, because then in the confessional you get assurance, right? I, if you've already done it in, in the confessional, then you definitely should not continue to pray for forgiveness because it has been forgiven. Um, and so it would actually be, um, it can be a sign of pride uh, to hold ourselves above God's declaration of forgiveness, right? So if the priest says, I absolve you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, you are absolved. And, it, and it, you know, it doesn't always, uh, we were, I was talking about this with some guys the other day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I think so. And, and rest in God's forgiveness of you. You know, know that that's what's true of you because you've confessed it and he has pronounced you forgiven through his minister. Um, that can be hard. That can be hard, but that is what's true. And so, again, this is where I think Satan as an accuser can be really insidious because he's, he'll sometimes whisper to us, you know, what about that time that you did 
X, Y, or Z, you know, and it, and it comes and we say, oh yeah, what about that? You know, and if, and, and, and that's, on the one hand, it's a good sign because it means we have a conscience, right? Well, what about that? That does bother me that I did that. But what you can tell Satan when he do, does that to you is, I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven. Jesus has forgiven me. And that's much more powerful than his accusations can be. Um, so it, it's difficult. It's difficult for us to rest in that, but that's what we're, I think that's what we're called to do. And because we are who we are, which are lowly sinners, Christ covers us through his blood. We wouldn't be anywhere if God didn't come down to Christ and save us. So right. rest assured, you're a child of God, and because of that, you're covered. I love the comfortable words for that reason. Every Sunday, hearing those every Sunday, it really does, uh, it really does help um, us become aware that, that that forgiveness is there for us. Um, and so, yes, uh, it's, uh, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. And it's a process, just like we've been talking about. Forgiving yourself is a process, too, just like uh, forgiving others can be. It's a, it's a temptation to not, um, to not believe Right. And that's the problem. I was raised Protestant. And so I, and I, think, I think anyone who was is kind of infected with the, the sin of Martin Luther, who walks out of a confessional and says, I don't feel forgiven. And the, the, that's exactly what it is, of course, because, I mean, you are forgiven. Jesus gave that power to his apostles. Bishop Chad can show you the, the, literally the, 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 the succession all the way back to them. Of his ordination, it's not a, it's not a joke. I mean, you're literally a continual line of men all the way back to the apostles that laid hand on your bishop. Your bishop laid hands on him, gave him the, the power to do that. He has every power except the Holy Spirit, and and that's a fact. Jesus said it. He did it to those men. You have a man here today who stands in his place, just like they always did. And when he says, I absolve you of all your sins, Sister, you are absolved of all your sins. Martin Luther had some. I think it comes down to forgiving yourself. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, yeah. And, and your forgiveness of yourself is possible because God's forgiving you. And if God can forgive you, then you can forgive you. You know, that's, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, that because God's forgiveness is more important than your own self forgiveness. It absolutely he, is. If he says you're forgiven, you're forgiven because he's God. You accusing yourself is not is insignificant. He's God. He's the judge of all things. Everything comes out of that declaration. Right. It all comes out of that declaration. God's declaration of us then gives us the, the power to forgive ourselves. But the, the forgiveness of ourselves would be a, a, an effect of God's forgiveness. Um, so it's not something we need to continually bring up because it's been, it's been done. It's been dealt with. And so then the battle just becomes in our own hearts. So, uh, you know, praying for, for faith, that's, the, I think, the key, right? Praying for the faith to, um, yes, forgive ourselves, but to trust in God's word. That's the key. Healing on the memories. I like that. Yeah. Right, because um, we can kind of zero in in our memory. 
of all the bad things that that person did to us. And again, there's that idea of humanizing them, of taking a step out and considering the whys and the hows and, and you know, what happened from a different angle. Um, so if someone cuts me off in traffic, I can think, man, that person is just so self-centered. They deserve all the honking and yelling I'm about to do to them, right? <laughs> but I could also say, well, maybe that person's had a bad day. You know, maybe they, maybe they were cut off earlier and they're just in a bad mood. Or maybe their boss yelled at them at the office and they just need to get home. Or, you know, things like that. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, some of it, that's a fiction. I mean, it may not be true. They may just be a jerk. But it at least helps me humanize them a little bit, you know. Um, and, and see, maybe things aren't quite the way that I perceive them to be. Um, because that's, in any experience, it's subjective. You know, the person who does the wrong may not see themselves as the one wronging. The person who is wrong may not see themselves as, uh, as uh, the person who's, who is wrong sees the other as the wronger. So there's a, there's a subjective element to all of our memories. And so praying for the healing, pray that we see that memory through the eyes of God. Um, I think will help bring bring healing to that. I, I love that. Pray for the healing of memories. Or, or along that point, the prayer that the priest prays, which you guys never hear, after confession, where he prays that God wipe his memory from everything just hmm that, Well, that's a good prayer. I think that uh, that's necessary for a priest because um, you're, you're being exposed to things. Right. Um, though it's interesting, a priest helps you bear the burden too. Um, so uh, in confession, there's a penance that's prescribed. Uh, not every priest does this, but I do it. Um, so whatever penance is prescribed, that priest does that penance as well. So you're not alone when you go. You know, he's helping you bear the burden. Um, and I think there's something kind of beautiful about that. Long, long, long time ago as a hippie, I tried to study Zen meditation. Oh, interesting. The idea is to quiet your mind stuff comes into your mind. Mm. You can't help it. And the Zen approach, or at least the guy that wrote the book about it, was saying, not that, not that, not that, mm. as it comes in. You can't force yourself to not think of that. Right. But you can say no. Yes. And let it go and not feed it mm. and let it go. I've done all kinds of things in my life and I am reminded of that. And I've gradually gotten to where I can say, yeah, I did that. Mm. And, and just choose to not, oh yeah, and, and then that happened. And, yeah, it, the sanctification of memory, we might say, right? It's not that the memory goes away. That event did make you who you are in some way. So the memory shouldn't, I don't think, go away necessarily, but it should be sanctified. And that might look differently depending on the kind of memory it is, but that is, that is the end goal. Um, that that memory would become a vehicle for your sanctification, not the opposite. Um, but it can be, right? Just like anything. I mean, anything can be used in a bad way or a good way. Mm. Mm. Bring me out of the darkness. I like that. Yeah, yeah. 
Another good one, um, and it's a, so short that it's helpful because it's easy to memorize, is the, the Jesus prayer, which is really common in orthodoxy. Um, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And again, it refocuses the attention, right? Not The other person's not the sinner. I'm the sinner, right? I need mercy. And that doesn't mean that they didn't sin. It just means that, that the focus is here. Um, and it's a way to center yourself, I think, in those moments where, where especially where you may be um, assaulted by either a bad memory or an unhealthy memory or, um, or, or some sort of bitterness. Where it takes the sinner off of me and puts it on Jesus. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Well, it is about time. We're going to take a short break, and then right around 12, we are going to have a Holy Communion. Thank you for being here today, by the way. This has been really fun, and I've really enjoyed all of your feedback.